Father, we thank you for your grace this evening. We thank you for bringing us together. See may your name be praised in Jesus' name. Father, as we go into your word today, I pray that you take control. Father, I pray that you teach us yourself. I pray that all that we listen to today will be beneficial to our lives, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name, I'm afraid. Good evening, everyone. Today we're continuing with the Groundwork series that we've been on for a number of weeks now. We are looking at Resurrection of the Dead, Part 2. As always, I'll give you a refresher by taking us to our root scripture in Hebrews chapter 6, from verse 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, and faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Amen. So these are the things that we have been looking at and considering for a few weeks now. We have taken a number of these themes and today we're going to be continuing with Resurrection of the Dead, which is the fifth of these six themes, looking at the part two. But first, let's talk about some of the things that we looked at in the first lesson. In the first lesson, we looked at Old Testament references to resurrection. I mentioned that one of the things that we need to know about any concept that exists in the Old Testament or under the Old Covenant or under the New Covenant, as you will find in Scripture, that you cannot validate something to be true under the New Covenant until you can see it manifesting itself fully in both Old and New Covenant. You will find that there's usually shadows of things that we see under the new covenant represented in the under the old covenant. There is no biblical concept or biblical theme that is limited to just one half or portion of scripture that we can take as scriptural doctrine. I think I've mentioned that enough here. So resurrection, for the validity of resurrection, we have to stick close to those rules that we already examined. So we looked at some Old Testament references to resurrection. We looked at our expression of eternity. How do we express eternity? One of the things that I said was that our understanding of eternity is very limited because we are we're existing in the temporal. We are controlled and constrained by time. And we talked about the fact that eternity is beyond just saying endless time. Eternity is a realm beyond time. Time does not exist where eternity is. And eternity is the place where spirit beings live forever, without end. And because we have a spirit, man is a three-part being who has a soul, lives in a body, but his first spirit. For that reason, we have a part of eternity within us, like he said by Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, like we talked about. Then after that, we also looked at man's place in eternity, and we explored scriptures that tell us people who would not experience resurrection from the dead by the virtue of what resurrection is, because resurrection essentially is the resurrection of the body. And that's where we stopped in the last class. Today, we're going to be looking at Christ, our pattern. And 
in the same vein that when we are talking about biblical themes and biblical concepts, you cannot ignore the Old Testament. You have to look at both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In that same vein, another simple rule we can have as believers is that anything that Jesus Christ has not laid an example of really does not belong to us. It doesn't. So if anybody is teaching you something that Jesus Christ did not either lay an example of or live his life as a pattern of or his coming has a direct effect on that thing, then it's not for you. Because every single thing that he came and he did and even the life that he lived, which is why he didn't just appear as a grown man and even if you want to talk about the fact that he was born, he didn't just grow up, become 30. Then the next thing he did was found a place to, to die. Every single thing that happened in his life was to set a pattern for us. And every single thing that he did was to defeat something or to affect something or to effect something on the life of the believer. The Bible says that he was poor so that we might become rich. The Bible says that by his stripes we are healed. Which means that Every experience that he had, everything he had to go through, has an effect on the believer. No believer can claim anything as his or her right without Jesus being the pattern. It has to link directly to him because he is the first fruit of every single thing that makes us who we are. And that also follows for resurrection. And if you look through the Gospels and other scriptures, you would see that there are three basic stages or phases of restoration or resurrection, rather, that you would find in scripture. The first we can find in the book of John, chapter 5, verse 25. Actually, John 5, 25 contains the first and the second for being very, very particular about it. John 5:25 says, "Verily, verily I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall what shall live." So right there and then you see that Jesus is talking about deadness and he's talking about life. Right? It says the hour is coming and now is that hour. We need to understand that when Jesus is speaking and he says hour, he doesn't literally mean 60 minutes. Hour in this context means season. So essentially, the season is coming and the season is now because the season was that point. Because Jesus was walking slowly but surely to his death. And he was at the point of his death and resurrection that those who are dead can now hear the voice of the Son of God and receive what? And receive life. So Jesus laid the foundation for salvation with every single person that he interacted with in those three and a half years. Which is why you find in scripture that, and I think we said it before, in the same book of John, as soon as he rose up and he appeared to the disciples, the first thing he said was, receive you the Holy Ghost. Receive you the Holy Ghost because they had fulfilled the conditions, because they had heard his voice. But something had to happen first before they could receive that life. He had to die. 
That's why you see that when Jesus went and he had the conversation with the Samaritan woman, and the Bible says that everyone in Samaria believed that testimony, and they came to Jesus, and they told Jesus that, okay, now we believe, not just because of what she has said, but because we have heard you, and we have seen you. But you see, salvation did not exist at that time. So it's no surprise that as soon as salvation was available, the Holy Spirit grabbed Philip and said, okay, go there. And it was seamless. They basically just heard and received. Because everything that happened between the space of Jesus getting there the first time and between Philip getting there could not have been more than three and a half years roughly. Right? Because Jesus' entire ministry was three and a half years. And he did not go to Samaria at the very beginning. So let's just say when Philip went to Samaria. This was a little while after the church had started. Roughly the same time period. The people there have not forgotten Jesus. They had not forgotten that message, that encounter. So it was easy for them. So in John 3, John 5 rather, 25, what we see here is two different stages of resurrection being mentioned at the same time. The first is the resurrection of Jesus himself, which will give access to resurrection into new life, which is what we call salvation. Right? Can we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1? Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you he had quickened who were dead in trespasses and what? And sins. That is salvation. If you look at Ephesians 5, 14. You see it again, it says, Wherefore he saith, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. All pointing towards salvation. But you see, the third, the third type of resurrection that we have is also written in John chapter 5, and it's from the words of Jesus. In fact, he says them in the same sentence, in the same breath, as what he says in John chapter 5, verse 25, because as you can see, it's just a few verses after. So John 5, 28 and 29 says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in which all that are in graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of what? Of damnation. So it's quite clear that this kind of this resurrection he's talking about is very different from what he just spoke about in John chapter 5, verse 25. What are the differences? In this part, he said the hour is coming, but he never said, and the hour is what is now. I remember we said that hour here means season. So he never said the hour is now. In 25, he said the hour is coming, and now is that hour. The season is coming, and now is that season. So that's the first indication we find. That's the first difference we can see. That Jesus here is talking about something that is obviously a future event. The second is that he mentions graves. And graves are a physical thing. This is not an analogy. This is not idiomatic. This is not an expression. This is not a metaphor. This is literal, what? Graves. And the third is that he actually used the word resurrection. You see, in John 5.25, if you check, he never said the words resurrection. 
we just know that receiving life into us, our spirits are coming alive. Essentially, the difference between the two is that one has to do with the resurrection or the revival of the spirit, which we receive immediately. We give our lives to Jesus. But there's a resurrection for the body. And Paul was not the first person to dish out this revelation to the church. So when Paul is writing about the rapture and writing about the second coming and writing all these things, Paul was not the first person to dish it out. In fact, Jesus wasn't the first technically. It was Daniel. Then we see it again by Christ. And if we check Daniel chapter 12, which I think we looked at last two weeks, verse 1 to 3, what you find out is that they are both saying the same thing. That this resurrection of the body is going to occur at a future time in a future place. And what is going to happen is that there will be two different types of resurrection. There will be two different kinds. But everyone will, apart from those who are not dead. So once again, as I was preparing for this, I thought we were going to have two classes, and now it's three. Because there's eschatology, and there's a lot to talk about. And I really can't finish it today. This manual isn't complete. There's nothing on the rapture here. There's nothing on the millennial reign here. There's nothing on the witnesses and the martyrs who we read about in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, I think. But we cannot say that we're in a Bible study and we're covering resurrection of the dead and won't talk about all these things. We have to talk about them all. And we simply can't finish all of that today. But for now, at least under Christ being our pattern, we can see that even from the words of Jesus, Jesus has already laid out all the framework of this entire subject. So when, when um, the writer of Hebrews is talking about this thing as foundational, he's not lying. He's not joking when he says that understanding resurrection of the dead is a foundational teaching. Another place that would interestingly prove this to you is the fact that when Lazarus died and Jesus met with Martha and Jesus was asking her, do you believe that he can come back to life? Martha said to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe that he would resurrect on the last day. Was Martha one of the 12 disciples? No, she wasn't. What this proves to us is that this teaching is something that Jesus had already taught, at least in a fairly general sense. It wasn't secret information that it was reserving for some select people. This was something that was commonplace to those who have listened to him and have actually heard his teachings. He had spoken about it before. The only difference is that in that specific scenario, Jesus wasn't asking Martha about that resurrection. Jesus was talking to Martha about a resurrection of Lazarus's body in the here and now. A return to life that has to do with returning to still the same corrupt body. 
Jesus was trying to prove that even that one, he has the power to what? To do it. Because all resurrection is from him. He is the pattern son. We have nothing outside of him. The first fruits of everything that we're speaking about today is the fact that Jesus came to do it. And he holds the key to it being done. Real quickly, we are going to look at 1 Corinthians 15.23. And we're going to dip our toes slowly into eschatological teachings. But we have to start from this. 1 Corinthians 15. Twenty-three says, "But every man in his own." In fact, let's just read from twelve. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is what? There is no resurrection of the dead. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching vain. And your faith is also vain. Yea, we have found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not, Christ, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Yea, are yet in your sins. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Even this life only, we have hope in Christ. We are, of all men, most what? Miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that are slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order... Christ the first fruits, afterwards that they afterwards they that are what? Christ's at his coming. That's what we want to talk about today. But to read it from, from verse twelve so you can see what was going on in the church at that point in time. What was going on in the church at that point in time was that Sadduceical teaching or the teaching of the Sadducees has started to creep into the Corinthian church. So the Sadducees essentially believed that there was no such thing as resurrection. There was no such thing as the supernatural. They didn't believe in the existence of angels. They didn't believe in the existence of demons. Naturally, to be fair, as the church began to progress, the Sadducees were the first sect to actually die off. They were the first sect to die off because as the church began to grow, it became quite clear because of the signs and the wonders that the supernatural existed. And the Pharisees never had this problem. The Pharisees believed these things. So for them, it took a little more time for the discrepancies in their own belief system and the Christians to have a sort of clear distinction and resolution. But parts of these teachings were creeping back into the church, the Corinthian church specifically. And Paul was writing to them and letting them understand that resurrection is the entire point of us being believers. If Jesus did not rise up, then we're just deceiving ourselves. The victory of the cross 
is in the resurrection. The resurrection is the proof that the sacrifice had been accepted by God and there was no sin found in Jesus. If Jesus did not rise up, we are wasting our time. Which is why he said, if we have hope in Christ only in this life, and after this life we have no hope in Christ, then we have all men the most miserable. We might as well just live whatever life we want to live. We are deceiving ourselves. We are worse off than those that don't accept Jesus and do whatever it is they like. That's the truth. And Paul was making this point to them. But what I want to bring out is in verse 23, which says, but every man in his own order. Because he talked about what came through the first Adam, and he talked about what came through Christ. And he said essentially that resurrection will happen, but every man in his own what? Order. And then after that, he mentions the fact that Christ is coming for those who are his at his what? At his coming. Meaning that there is something very, very important about the state in which Christ finds the believer when he returns. I'll tell you how many phases I went through when I was a kid. Because I'd known about the rapture for God knows how long. I'd known about the second coming for God knows how long. I had known for a while that, you know, Jesus is going to come as a thief in the night. We never know when, the hour, the moment he was returning. But it took me a while before I got to the point of looking at it as a beautiful thing. So I went through the, the periods of fear. And that's because we watched a lot of I didn't even watch Left Behind. I did worse. I read the books, which is far worse than actually watching the movies. The books are terrible. They are good books of fiction, but they are not good to build your faith. They, they are weird. Because they focus on so many things that happen after that. And I also watched, what I watched was this rapture Nigerian movie that had like a bunch of Nigerian actors. I think it had RMD in it and a bunch of, so a bunch of people were left behind. I watched that. And there was the entire torture scene. Oh, my God. I watched it because they played it in school. as in JS1 or 2. And they brought it. They played it as school cinema. So they brought all of us to watch it. It was just, and I was a border, so it was horrible. Because when you go back in the night, all you're thinking about is, that's how to start. And in, in, there were a lot of gruesome things. They cut people's hand, put somebody inside oil, fried it. It was the whole thing. It was a mess. So, that period of my life, it was fear. It was just fear. Nothing more, nothing less. But you see, I also progressed to the point where what I was now trying to do was to scam God. In that, I kind of realized that if the point is that he would return without anybody knowing, and it's just about the state in which he finds me, then all I need to do is remember to ask for forgiveness before I go to bed, and just casually just say, even if there's no conviction in my heart of anything that I did wrong, if I just know, Sha, that I am a sinner. So it's like you're putting some in the bank. Does that make sense? Like you're putting some, God forgive me, Jesus forgive me, cleanse me, so that when you come, just putting some in the bank and remembering to just renew that account. 
essentially what I was doing was I became extremely sin conscious, extremely sin conscious. The point of this teaching is not to be sin conscious. Neither is it to fill us with fear or trepidation about the return of our Lord. It is instead to help us to understand, and this is quite related to some of the things we spoke about even on Sunday, that you see, our way of life has to constantly be in sync with Christ at all times. Meaning that once saved is not forever saved. And these are the great doctrines that divide much of the different types of Christianity that we have today. But it's clear in scripture. One of my favorite scriptures is actually one of the supporting verses for this, and that's in Galatians chapter 5. I love this scripture a lot because I found it. I don't know if you've ever felt that way about a verse of the Bible. Like I found it. It's almost like you customize it as your own. Because you kind of can remember the experiences that were surrounding you or what you were going through when you found it. It says, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with his affections and loss. So important to me, but it's also important to this teaching. The reason why is because if you read through Galatians, Galatians is the book where you see Paul elaborates on what the works of the flesh are. Then after that, he enters and speaks about the fruits of what the Spirit. And this is the verse immediately after he makes a list of the fruits of the Spirit. After he says meekness and temperance, and he says against such there is no law. The next statement he makes is, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with his affections and his loss. The, the reason why this statement is so important is Paul is trying to let you know is that all those things that he listed before the works of the flesh should be dead. And it is up to every single one of us to ensure that they remain what? Dead. So everything should remain dead. I once read a teaching on the, on the works of the flesh and I read the different categories and categories are very interesting because you find that there are a lot of, so it's divided into the sins of the body. Then you find sins of emotion sins of emotion, then you find sins of attitude. Because emotion and attitude are not the same thing. So when you see things like hatred, when you see things like envy, those are sins of emotion. But then you have sins of the body like adultery, fornication, and all these things. It was a really nice teaching. I read it once. Um, and it stuck with me. I wrote it down in the diary. But what I love the most about Galatians 5.24 is that he kind of shifts your focus in that 
Paul is not even trying to say, okay, memorize all these bad things and make sure you don't do them. And look at all these good things that are supposed to be in your life. What he's telling you is, okay, those things that are listed, it's just sort of like, if you see them in your life, what that means, what that should tell you is that something is happening in you that should not be happening because the standard is that those things are dead. And it's a very beautiful buttressing scripture for those who are Christ that is coming. Because if those things remain dead, there is no doubt and you have no problem worrying where you will be or what side you will be on or if you will belong to Jesus when, whenever he returns as a thief. So it's not of, it's like a thief rather in the night. It's not for you to not start looking at your calendar and start being scared that you didn't... Because I got to that point when I was in the phase of fear that sometimes if I go to bed and I forget to, to pray, God forgive me as I go, <laughs> as I go to bed this night. <laughs> if I forget to pray that prayer, it got so bad that sometimes like, I wake up from like, mid-sleep just to say that short prayer so I can go back to bed. But that's not what Paul is saying. It means you don't, you don't have to live your life that way. You don't have to live your life trying to scam God either. Trying to be calculative about right or wrong. Because the truth is, if you identify and know that the standard is that these things are dead, then when Jesus comes, you will belong to him when he comes. You will. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. And that doesn't mean that you don't make mistakes. That simply means that when fellowship is constant, the Spirit of God has a way of doing His work. It means that a mistake does not have to remain a mistake. That when the devil tries to raise a small seed of anything that is in here, the Spirit of God kills it quickly before it germinates into stem, branches, tree, starts producing fruit. It's dead. Because the standard is that that thing is dead, it's crucified, it should not raise its head. It doesn't mean the devil is not going to try. If you read through the book of Galatians, what you see is that the problem that these people were having is that these things had been allowed to fester in their lives, to germinate and give birth to fruits. And that's not the standard. Which is why Galatians 5 starts by saying, stand fast in liberty through which Christ has made you free. And be not entangled again by the yoke of bondage. Also one of my favorite scriptures. I like that book. Let's just say. But I don't, the, the parts I like are not the, the fruit of the Spirit. I just like how Paul wrote this book. Let's look at 2 Timothy 2.19. Quickly. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from what? Iniquity. This is kind of like a two-way authentication. You know how like on your social media accounts, they should come and do two-way authentication. It's kind of like a two-way 
in that this is the foundation of God's standard show. He has this seal. What is the seal? The first part of that seal is that God knows those are who that belong to him. That one is dependent on who? On God. And that one, what do we do with it? We take it on faith. I belong to God. How do I know I belong to God? Because, I be- because I've received Jesus and Christ lives in me. And Christ is God's because Christ is the Son of God. Right? So that's on faith. But that's God's part. The Lord knows who those who are his. Those that belong to him. But you see, the next part has nothing to do with God. It says, let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from what? Iniquity. That's on you now. And you see, you need those two steps for the verification. So you can't say you are taking it on faith that you belong to Jesus. And then you do not actively depart from iniquity. It just won't fly. Because if you do not actively depart from iniquity, you cannot be Christ that is coming. And you see, this entire talk of resurrection, as we've discussed so far, about how when we speak about resurrection, everyone is going to resurrect. Some are going to resurrect to something, and some are going to resurrect to the other. Some are going to resurrect to life, the others are going to resurrect to what? To condemnation and damnation. There's no point in teaching this topic in the church if we are not teaching about, okay, we want to resurrect to life. But the first thing that we have to talk about first is that for resurrection to life to take place, we have to be Christ at whatever time he returns. True or false? True. So to conclude today and next week, like I said, we're going to start with the rapture. Next two weeks, rather. We're going to start with the rapture. That's the first thing we're going to talk about. Then we'll talk about the witnesses. We'll talk about the millennial reign. And we'll close. The last day, actually. Why do you think the last day is called the last day? Well, I'll tell you what I believe. I believe it just further buttresses my point. That eternity is outside of time. And the only reason why there is a last day is because when that is done, and if you read through your Bible, that's what we see in the book of Revelations 2021, 20, all the events that happen there. And when that is done and we step into new life with Christ, and that's when resurrection will take place. That's what Martha was talking about. That's what Jesus told them. But we'll see like there are successive stages and different sets of people that we have in the Bible and all the resurrections that are ascribed to them. There's the resurrection of those who go through tribulation, for example. There's the translation of those who are alive at his coming, who would not die, who will not resurrect, who will just be transformed. There's the resurrection of those who have been dead in Christ. All of these things are earmarked in the Bible, and they are all eschatological. And just so we know, eschatology is never going to give you pinpoint accounts. So next week, next two weeks, we're not going to, I'm not going to be telling you, so immediately after this one happens, then we'll wait for 
If that's what you're looking for, I'm sorry. I don't have the map. But we would see all these different, essentially, I call them packets. They are talked about in different places in scripture. And we would find out how they relate and how they align till we get to the end. But before we close today, I quickly want to run through what the five purposes of Christ's return is. The first is Christ is returning for his church. The Bible says in the book of John 14, 13, that's where he says that I go to prepare a place for you. But if it was not so, I would not tell you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that's the first reason why he's returning. The second reason why he's returning is because of the national salvation of Israel. Of Israel. The nation of Israel. Don't write them off. They are your spiritual ancestors. And God has plans for them. We see that in Romans chapter 11. We see Paul's heart for Israel. Let's just open Romans 11, 26 to 27. I can't read the whole of it. But at the very least, we can read 11, 26, 27. It says, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, They shall come out of Zion to deliver her, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their, what? their sins. If you do a study of the covenant with Abraham, you find out that the covenant with Abraham has three parts. And only one of those parts actually ap- ap- applies to us. Like we that are Christians. The first two parts apply to the nation of Israel themselves. So the covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I'm not going to go into a deep teaching on it, but something that if you have time you can study. It's divided into three main parts. The first is about the land. That's the physical possession that he was going to give the nation of Israel which still exists till tomorrow. Israel will always be surrounded by enemies. They will always try to take their land. They will never succeed. That's the first. The second is about kingship and rulership that will come from that line, which is the Davidic covenant, because it basically pinpoints on David, and it's because David literally is the one that was going to lead to Christ. And Christ is going to be the governmental head of this world. Which we will see when we get to the end of this our list that we are running through. So that's the second aspect. The third is the aspect of blessings. In which he said, and through your seed, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. That's the covenant with Abraham. That seed is Jesus. And it is through Jesus that we all can what? Come into the family of God. It is that aspect of the covenant that actually belongs to us. But the remaining two touch on the nation of Israel. So God still has plans for Israel. Amen. The third is to overthrow the Antichrist. Overthrow the Antichrist. I'm just going to open Second Thessalonians 2, verse 8. It says, And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and destroy with the brightness 
of his coming. That wicked there is the Antichrist. If you read through the book of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, you would see it there. Number four is to judge the Gentile nations. How many of us know that the nations of this earth to be judged by Jesus? Yes. It's to judge them. That's another time he's returning. That's another reason why Christ is coming back. Matthew 25. It says, And when the Son of Man, 31 to 32, And when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them from one another, as shepherds divided the sheep from the goats. Jesus was the one speaking here. He was speaking about himself. So he's coming to judge the Gentile nations, the nations of this world. Every single one of us is coming to judge us. And the fifth is to establish his millennial reign upon the earth. Which you see spoken about in Revelation, but we also see prophecies about it in Isaiah and in Zechariah. If you can turn our Bibles to Isaiah 24, verse 23. Isaiah 24, 23 says, And the moon shall be confounded, and the sun ashamed, and the Lord of lords shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem before his ancients, what, gloriously. Let's check Zechariah 14, 19. Zechariah 14, 19. Sorry, fourteen nine rather says. It says, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and in that day there shall be one Lord, and his name what? One. So these are prophecies to show that Jesus was going to return and he was going to rule over this earth. And that's where we're going to stop for today. Let's rise up. Throughout this teaching and up, up until the points that we get to eternal judgment, the only prayer points that I'll be raising here are prayer points of thanksgiving. You see, there was a point in my life when I used to hate these teachings because all, all that they filled me with was fear. I just used to be very afraid that somehow I wouldn't cut it, I wouldn't make the cut. Somehow, somehow I would be scammed out of heaven. And no matter what I did, I could never be good enough. But you see, that time I was operating by works. Because that's the truth. The truth is I can never be good enough. That's the point. I just hadn't surrendered or understood that our part in it is very minimal and our part in it is just surrender. And everything else has already been accomplished by God for our good and for our benefit. So I want us to spend this time thanking God this evening and exalting him because he had a plan from the beginning for us. Because he never wants anyone to perish and he, don't, he didn't want any of us to be lost forever. So he enacted all this to make sure that he restores all of us back to himself. 
And I want you to thank him for this grace this evening. I want you to open your mouth. I want you to bless his holy name. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Our Father, we give you praise, we give you worship. Thank you for all that you've taught us. In Jesus' mighty name we have prayed.